Our sermon text today is Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9. I just want to ask you, do you remember how back a few weeks ago we, we started Philippians 3, and Paul began that, that second half of his letter by saying, finally, as if he were closing at that time. And we discussed how it turned out he ended up not closing them, but we're actually moving toward the end of his thoughts now. He is concluding what he has to say. And, and as he moves toward the end of what he has to say to the church of Philippi, he, he wants to give them some, some encouraging thoughts. He wants to encourage them to stand firm in the peace that they have in Christ Jesus, for he is their only hope. And just the same, he's our only hope. We have hope nowhere else than but in Christ Jesus. So this message today is a, a timely message for us today, regardless of where we come from and where we are now. For no matter your background, no matter what your current state is spiritually, it is true that Christ Jesus is your only hope. So let us see what God has for us in his word today. But before we do that, would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us today, not because we deserve to hear your voice, not because we have earned the privilege of being your children, but because Christ Jesus died for his beloved, for his bride, for the church, and because we need to hear your voice. We need it to be saved. We need it to walk with you. We need it to be strengthened. We need it today. So speak to us, we pray, asking in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now, Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9. This is the inspired word of God. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word, which inspired by God is our only rule for faith and practice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. 
You may have noticed the, the title that I gave this sermon was Stand Firm in Peace. And, and oftentimes, I, I suspect, we don't think of standing firm as a way toward peace. Uh, oftentimes, I think we think that, that if we really need to have peace, it would seem it's likely to come through compromise, through, through being flexible. And, and indeed, that's true. Oftentimes, that is the way to peace, by, by being flexible and, 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 and compromising. That can certainly yield peace. But there are certain things on which we must stand firm in the Lord if we are to experience the peace of the Lord peace of the Lord, which is our only hope. And so Paul writes in Philippians, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We see once again Paul's mindset toward the church at Philippi, how very much he loves them, how very special they are to him. Note how he refers to them. He says, I love you. I long for you. You are my joy and my crown. You are my beloved. And to this church, he says, stand firm in the Lord. For he is your only hope. He is your only hope. People might come up with other schemes. They might come up with other plans. They might come up with other ideas. And, and, and they might even seem to believe that that the fervency with which they believe those things determine their veracity. But nothing could be further from the truth, right? In our day, that, that seems to be the way people think. If, if I make an argument and you don't believe my argument, then I just need to make my argument louder. As if that somehow is more correct. Well, Paul says, no, that's not the way it is. It doesn't matter how loud you make your argument, how fervent and passionate you make your argument. There is but one hope, and that is that you be found in the Lord. Scores of times throughout Paul's letters, he, he uses phrases such as this, in the Lord or in Christ Jesus, in him. These, these, these ideas combined together as one idea really, really is a, a central thought to all that Paul has to say, this idea of being in him. It's because it's central to our identity. We, we need to be found in Christ Jesus. And, and when we believe in Christ Jesus or trust in Christ Jesus, it's not just saying that we're, we're trusting him as the object of our faith, though that certainly is true. We are trusting Jesus as the object of our faith. He is, he is the one in whom we have placed our faith. But there's something beyond that when, Jesus, when Paul uses these terms about being in Christ or in Jesus, in him. He's talking about being in union with him. And so we need to be found in union with him, which is something that happens only through faith. The spirit who gives us faith is a gift through faith, binds us together with him so that we are, we are united with him and thus united with one another. Right? Because if, if you are united with Christ, and, and you are united with Christ, and you are united with Christ, and you are united with Christ, and I am united with Christ, and we are all united one with another. And that's why it's essential that the standing firm in the Lord necessarily entails that we stand firm in harmonious peace in our relationships. 
I think that's part of what he's saying here. We need to stand firm in harmonious peace in our relationships. He says in verse 2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And maybe we ask, well, well, who are these people? Who is this Euodia? Who is this Syntyche? And, and, and what's the subject of their disagreement? And frankly, we don't really know. The Bible is silent on those other than what he says about them right here in verse 3. He says that, that, that I ask you also, true companion, to help these women. So we know that they're, they're both women. And, and he says that they have labored side by side with me in the gospel. So we know that they are, they are Christian women who have worked alongside Paul, together with Clement and the rest of his fellow workers. They've, they've been a part of the church, and they, they have served alongside Paul. They've, they've been a part of his work. So, so they're not just Johnny-come-latelys, right? They're, they're people who are, who are deeply involved, and, and we need to remember that, that as they've worked side by side with him in the gospel, they've, they've proclaimed the truth of Christ Jesus, that, that we are sinners, that we are dead in our sins and separated from God as a result. But Christ Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Having lived a holy life, he thereby, thereby not only removed our sin from us, absorbing the full measure of God's wrath against our sin, but granting us the righteousness of his life and his person, that we might be righteous in the eyes of God. This is the gospel. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. He goes on to say that, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas and the twelve and to more than 500 and then ultimately uh, to James and the apostles and last of all to me. He says this is the gospel. This is, this is of central importance to all that I proclaim and all that I do. It's not all that Paul did. Certainly there are other things that he did, other things that he said, but this was central to all that he did. And so it should be with us. The gospel and its proclamation to the world should be central to all we do. It's nice to have other projects and other things we do. There's nothing wrong necessarily with them. But the gospel must be central to all we do. That's what differentiates the church from from some other club, right? We're not just a country club that has a membership that gets together and we're all friends by virtue of our membership in the club. We're not even just a a charitable organization that gets together and, and serves serves the world through through charitable giving and, and charitable service. But certainly, we do that, and we should do that. We are called to do that. But what is central to the, our identity as the church is the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, and that we can have salvation in him and in him alone. He is our only hope. And so Paul says, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. In the Lord. Now, now the word he has here of agree, and we translate it as agree, is probably not the best translation. Um, it's, it's perhaps better stated to be of one mind in the Lord. You can see how that would seems a lot like agree, to be of one mind, to agree. But, but I think if we were to say to be of one mind in the Lord, it might draw on something that we've seen earlier. Do you remember back in Philippians 2? Remember back in Philippians 2 in verse 5, what we read? When Paul said, have this mind among yourselves, 
which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see the, the language, the construction is very similar to what he's saying here. And I think that he's drawing on that which he has already said there. And we're supposed to understand that. And what, what was the mind that Christ Jesus has? But one of humble self-sacrifice. That is the mind he's talking about. A humble, self-sacrificing love for one another. And so I think he's saying to Euodia and to Syntyche and really to the whole church in Philippi and to all of us here as well, that we are to have that mind. Have that mind of humble, loving, self-sacrifice. All of our disagreements, all of our relationships should be governed by that principle. Now on, on matters of truth, we must we must stand firm on the truth. We should do so with, with a humble spirit. As Paul puts it elsewhere, we should speak the truth in love. But I don't think that's what was happening here with, with these two women. I don't think it was a matter of, of doctrinal truth. And the reason I think that we can be pretty certain about that is Paul doesn't say, hey, Euodia and, and Syntyche, you guys need to get this right. Euodia has it right. right? So Syntyche, you've got to agree with what she says. And he doesn't say it the other way either, right? Now, it's not because Paul doesn't care what truth is. Of course he cares what truth is. Much of what Paul said is dealt with theological, doctrinal truth. But here it's not a matter of that. He's saying, saying you need to love one another. You need to, to stand firm on matters of truth, but on matters of preference, on matters of opinion. We should be willing to, to lovingly state our case, but in the end to humbly defer to others. It's actually a mark of spiritual maturity because it realizes that we are members of a body. That we love others even as we love ourselves. That we see that we are actually loving ourselves as we love others. It's an important truth, especially as we come to the Lord's table in just a little bit. This idea that we are to, to defer to others, that we are to love them even more than ourselves we're put their needs even above our own in first corinthians 11 we see those words of institution that that i'll read in just a few minutes here and there's there's a couple or some parallel couplets that we see in that passage it talks about the body and the blood and the bread and the cup and eat and drink and we see these these things and and it's interesting what it says there. It, you know, it says, often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, and whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup, and, and uh, how if they do it in an unworthy manner, they'll be guilty of profaning the body and the blood. And so we're supposed to examine ourselves as a result. And so eat the bread and drink the cup for anybody who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on itself. The, the body, did you catch that? Kind of straggling there by itself. Now he said, eat, drink, bread, cup, body, blood, time and time again. But the one time, he says the body, he says that we have to discern the body when we come to the table. I think what he's talking about there is something different than what he's said when he said the body everywhere else. He said body and blood, body and blood. I think what he's talking about there is the body of Christ, as the, the body of Christ who is the believers in the church. We are the body of Christ. We use this language, right? I think that's what he's saying when he says we need to discern the body. He says you need to pay attention to the fact that you are 
one body with each other. And I think it, it, it bears out because we see the context in which this is written. The context in which it's written in 1 Corinthians 11 is one where we have those who were not loving their brothers and sisters in Christ, but rather were, were partaking of the Lord's Supper in a, in a selfish and unloving manner. You see, what was happening was, was they, were, they were coming together and, and not everybody could be there at the same time because, you know, the really rich people were able to, to show up and, and they could be there early. But the people who were perhaps slaves, who, who weren't as uh, wealthy, they, they didn't have as much ability, they, they couldn't get there until they got off at the end of the day, right? So they, they came much later. And, and by the time they would arrive, actually, the, the people who were more fortunate, who had been there all day, they've, they've partaken and they've eaten all the food. They've, they've partaken all the bread. It's gone. They've drunk all the wine. It's gone. And so, so there are people showing up now who are members of the body of Christ, and, and they can't partake of this love feast, this, this meal that's being given, this communion. That they're left out. And that's why Paul refers to even here. He's, he says in 1 Corinthians 11, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Uh, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. See, what he's saying is, is some people are getting there and they're, they're filling themselves up on this food and they're getting drunk on the wine, where there's others who, who are getting nothing and they're not able to partake of the Lord's Supper because of your selfishness and because of your callous, unfeeling attitude toward the body of Christ. He says, if you are to really take the, body, or take the Lord's Supper, you need to discern the body of Christ. You are one body. You need to be aware of that. You need to love your brothers and sisters in Christ as you love yourself. You have to be concerned with one another. It's a teaching we see throughout Scripture, really. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, right? He says, says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. He says, he says God doesn't want your gift. If you're not right with your brother and sister in Christ, get right with them first. And in Mark 11, he says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. It sounds a lot like the Lord's Prayer, right? When we pray. Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We need to be right with one another if we are truly right with God. It is an evidence of it. I, I had a, a fellow pastor friend who, who was talking to me once about how there was just an amazing peace within his church, and he was so overjoyed by it. And I asked him, I said, what, what do you think is the key to the peace in your church? What do you think it is that is, has made your church so peaceful? And he said, Pete, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm sure there's a lot of things happening, but, but one of the things is we partake of the Lord's Supper every week. I said, what, what's that have to do with it? He says, well, we take seriously what the Lord says, that we have to be right with each other when we come to partake of the Lord's Supper. We need to be right with each other if we are going to partake of this meal. And so we keep short accounts. We get right with each other when we have a problem. Because we know it's just days away before we have to come to the table together. 
is an interesting perspective. It, you see, it, it helped them to feel the need to stand firm in their harmonious relationships. We also need to stand firm in joyful peace, with joyful peace in our hearts. Paul writes, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always again. I will say, rejoice. This is a message we've seen throughout the letter of Philippians. This idea of joy and rejoicing, as we've said time and time again, it's not circumstance-driven. Right? Things might be going really rotten for me right now. I might not be happy with the way things are, but I can still have the joy of the Lord. And he says in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, for, for, for the Lord is at hand. And, and again, reasonableness maybe isn't the best translation here. It's a really tricky word, actually. All the commentators have all kinds of different things that they say about it. William Hendrickson puts it great, I think. He says, um, when he translates, he translates it, uh, instead of reasonableness, he says big-heartedness. But he, he adds, for big-heartedness, one may substitute any of the following. Forbearance, yieldedness, geniality, kindliness, gentleness, sweet reasonableness, considerateness, charitableness, mildness, magnanimity, generosity. Taken together, they show the real meaning. But in each of these would-be English equivalents is taken by itself alone it becomes clear that there is not a single word in the English language that fully expresses the meaning of blue originally. See, it's, it's a much bigger term there, but, but what is clear, I think, from the context especially, is that it deals with the, the fact that the Christian's propensity to rejoice in, in the face of their trials is something unique. And say that that should be made known to others, and we can do this because of the gospel. We can do it because of what Christ has done dying for our sins. We can do it because of what he is currently doing, even when we don't understand how he is working or, or why he is doing the things he is doing. We can trust that he is at work for our good and for his glory, and we can do it based on the fact that he will one day return and set all things to rights. And so because of that good news, we can rejoice even when things are bad, even when the circumstances are hard. What do we do with the circumstances then, right? I mean, it's not so easy as just saying, I feel terrible, but I'm just going to stop feeling terrible. I'll be joyful. It doesn't happen that way, does it? Sometimes it's, it's really hard to shake that. You can't just do it. it. It takes more. Well, Paul tells us what to do there. He says, do not be anxious about anything. But everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Remember two weeks ago we sang the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Its author, Joseph Scriven, never intended that song to be a hymn, actually. He, he actually wrote it as a personal letter to his mother. And uh, she, was, she was in failing health, not doing well, and, and he wrote to her, and he knew of what he spoke. You see, Joseph, Joseph Screaming had grown up in Ireland, and he had what seemed to be a very promising future before him, and he got engaged, and literally on the eve of his wedding, his fiance drowned and died. He was devastated, you can imagine. He felt he needed to start anew, so he moved across the ocean to Canada, to start afresh. He started a new life there, found 
another young lady that he proposed to. But shortly before their wedding, she died as well. You can only imagine how devastated he must have been, how, how hard this was on him. And now his mother, back in Ireland, an ocean away, was in failing health, literally dying, a continent separated from her son. And he wrote to her, have we trials or temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. You see, he, he knew that of which he was speaking, right? He, he had gone through these things. But he knew he could take it to the Lord. It's not that, that it just makes everything all better immediately. Or, or it's not that we, even when he says we should never be discouraged. I, I don't think he's saying that we should never have any doubts. Or we should never have any, any sorrows or any grief or any depression. We, should, we, we, we can have those. In fact, he had all of those who wrote these words. What he's saying is that in the face of those things, we do not let them have the final word. We take them to the Lord. We unburden ourselves by giving them to the Lord and trusting that by the power of God we might maintain a joyful peace in our hearts even when we can't explain it. For Paul writes, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It surpasses all understanding in that it, it is greater than we can possibly imagine. And it surpasses all understanding in that we, we can't possibly fathom sometimes how we can have peace in the situation that we are in. And yet God by his spirit gives it to us. And so we trust in him and stand firm with a joyful peace in our hearts. But we should also seek finally as well to have a holy peace in our minds. Holy because it dwells on the things of holiness, right? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What do you spend your time thinking about? Right? What, what do you think about when you're in your free moments? Honestly, you know, for me, Yesterday, I spent a lot of time thinking about college football. Just being honest. I don't think there's anything wrong with college football. But there are probably better things I could sometimes devote my mind to if I'm spending all my time thinking of college football. Right? These types of things that he's talking about here. Even if, even if I'm not thinking about something that's morally bad, it might be kind of morally neutral. There are better things I can think of, those things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. I should shepherd my mind, and you should shepherd your mind in that direction, not just because it keeps out the bad things, but even more importantly, there's this. What is all of these things, or more precisely, who is all of these things that Paul lists? And who is it? That is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. Who is it but Christ Jesus, our Lord, who is all of these things? We should think about Jesus. 
focus on Jesus. Dwell on Jesus. Fill our minds with Jesus. Fill our minds with his words, with his deeds, led by his spirit and informed by his word. We should think the thoughts of Christ after him and experience a holy peace in our mind because it is a peace that comes from the God who alone is holy. So Paul says in closing of this section, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He's talking about faith at work here, right? Faith at work, a faith that is in practice. The God of peace will be with you. The God who makes peace. He is the God who makes peace. And that was the promise that Isaiah gave. We'll we'll get to the Sunday in Advent where we look at peace here. We're not there yet, but we'll get there. And and, and the promises of Isaiah were of a prince of peace. One whose government and of their peace there will be no end. It is, of course, Jesus who fulfilled this. He who, Paul says in Ephesians 2, is himself our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, the hostility that exists between God and man, the hostility that exists between one people group and another people group, the hostility that exists between individuals. God is the one who who gets rid of that, who who annihilates that dividing wall of hostility, who sets us right before God, who, who leaves us no longer separated from him. So as we prepare for the Lord's table, we we consider that the Apostle Paul has indeed warned of taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And so you might ask, what, what exactly is taking it in a worthy manner? Well, John Calvin explains so brilliantly, this is the worthiness, the best and only kind we can bring to God to offer our vileness and our unworthiness to him so that in his mercy we may be taken as worthy. To despair in ourselves so that we may be lifted up by him. To accuse ourselves so that we may be justified by him. He continues, it is a sacrament ordained not for the perfect, but for the weak and feeble to awaken, arouse, stimulate, and exercise the feeling of faith and love. Indeed, to correct the defect of both. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way. The Lord's Supper is for those who are truly sorrowful for their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ Jesus and that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy. So if you are sorrowful for your sins this morning, if you trust that they are forgiven in Christ Jesus, if you believe that your remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death, and if you earnestly desire for your your faith to be more and more strengthened and your lives made more and more holy, then the Lord Jesus Christ bids you to come to this table. It's not my table, and it's not Calvary's table, it's not a Presbyterian table, it is the Lord's table. And he says, 